Hello, and welcome to the Called Out Cafe podcast. I'm your host, Doug Hooley. Today, we're going to start into the next section of this series titled, Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. I call this section, The Making of the Modern Church and Why Today's Church is So Far Off Track. In this episode, which is episode 20 of this series, we're going to talk about the first iteration of the Ecclesia. But before we start our 2,000-year journey of church history and become distracted by the countless cobbling efforts of humans to construct an organization which many believe represents God's kingdom on earth, I want to contrast what you're about to hear in the future episodes uh, with the organization that God is building. His organization was planned, brought about, and maintained by Him. It's the ecclesia of His Son, Jesus. I'm referring here not to the individual called-out ones, but to the collective body of the called-out. Now, although there are members of the collective ecclesia alive today and walking around on this planet, it's still not an organization based in this current physical world that I'm talking about. In the spiritual, unseen, eternal world, Jesus is the one and only shepherd of the ecclesia. He is the head of the body. The ecclesia is based in the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus himself said is not of this world. What I'm talking about, this ecclesia grander organization, is made up of both those whose spirits remain alive but have died physical deaths, and those who are currently both alive spiritually and physically, you know, you and I. If, you can, if you're listening to this right now, you're the, the second part. <laughs> the ecclesia is made up of individual believers from every place and time. There are individuals who believe Jesus is the Messiah and Son of God. They believe this because they were appointed by God and enabled by His Holy Spirit to do so. The only condition one must meet for membership in Jesus' ecclesia is authentic belief in Him. And I say that fully realizing many churches have a lot of different organizational membership criteria. God miraculously allows the required authentic belief by revealing the truth concerning who Jesus is through His Holy Spirit. The called out have been purchased from amongst the rest of the world's population with the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. It's the ecclesia of Jesus whom God will have mercy on simply because they belong to Jesus. Jesus' ecclesia are those who populate the kingdom of heaven that he spoke so much about. He said that his kingdom is not of this world, like I already said. However, one day he will return and bring his kingdom and its inhabitants with him to this earth. That'll bring about the second iteration of the ecclesia, when the perishable will put on immortality and rule and reign with Jesus on the earth. Only then will his ecclesia function as a planet-wide, physical, and universal organization. It's just not that today. The mission of the called out who are alive on earth now 
is to faithfully act according to Jesus' principles and await his return. That's the same mission that the ecclesia on the day of Pentecost were called to live by. It's the same for those who Paul personally knew. Many amongst the called out have also been members of the human institution of the church throughout the past 2,000 years. However, those two organizations are not the same. The church is a synthetic imitation of the ecclesia. It represents how human reasoning and philosophy corrupted the gospel and became flesh. Jesus pointed out in Matthew chapter 22, verse 14, that many will be called, but only few will be chosen. He spoke of those who will fall away from the faith and those who are posers within the faith. For example, in the parable of the seeds and the sower, Jesus taught that out of several people who appear to accept the gospel message, there will be those who eventually turn away from it. That is a sobering thought. Three out of four in that parable turn away from the gospel for different reasons. Well, Jesus also teaches that amongst the wheat growing in a field, there will also be weeds. The wheat symbolizes the called out of God, those who are believers in Jesus, the ecclesia. The weeds symbolize the posers, those who only appear to be followers of Jesus, but are not. Jesus says, the weeds are planted by Satan. Now, why I'm pointing this out here is because as we begin to talk about how X thousands people believe here and X thousand were saved and baptized there, and yet another time a great multitude was added to the number of believers, many of those who the Bible say initially believed likely did not remain followers of Jesus. According to Jesus, many of them likely fell away as a result of the wicked one catching away what is sown in their hearts, or their faith lost out to persecution, which there was a great deal of during the first centuries of Christianity. And it may have been the cares of this world that caused them to lose their faith. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 13, verses 18 to 23. That's where the parable of the seed and the sores is located. As for those who remain in the faith, Jesus tells us that the enemy, Satan, purposefully places his own children amongst the faithful. These may be the same who initially believed, but fell away from the faith and yet stayed in the church. There's a tendency among Christians to think of the church triumphant as getting off to a glorious start and then marching forward in the glory of the Lord throughout history. With the gates of hell not prevailing against her, she will take back this planet from Satan by fulfilling the Great Commission, thereby ushering in the victorious coming of Jesus to this earth. And while the church is at it, others want us to believe that it's the will of Jesus for his followers to be healthy and prosperous. Of course, since the church is made up of humans, mistakes have been made, <laughs> to say the least. But church apologists make great excuses for every pagan and heretic killed at the hands of the church, for every inquisition, crusade, holy war, drowning of heretics, witch burnings, 
support of slavery, indulgence-charging prostitute-using popes, pedophile priests, multimillionaire televangelists, and youth pastors' affairs with the kids that he is or she is discipling. Well, the biblical fact is, it's always been a thin thread of the called out, chosen by God for salvation. That thread is the ecclesia. Only God knows who is who, who is authentic and who is not. Yet this thread can clearly be seen woven into the church. The ecclesia can be seen woven into the church. But it can also be found outside of the church. Well, there's always been so many posers, wolves amongst the sheep. While those in the church look at things like growth, missions, and service one way, God is doing something completely different with his ecclesias one by one. He continues to harvest those he has chosen to populate the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to talk a little bit about church history in general. Dan Brown, you know, the author of the Da Vinci Code, wrote, quote, History is always written by the winners. When two cultures clash, the loser is obliterated, and the winner writes the history books, books which glorify their own cause and disparage the conquered foe. As Napoleon once said, What is history but a fable agreed upon? Well, like Napoleon's fable agreed upon, it's popular consent that creates what we call orthodoxy. It's only God that dwells completely in the truth. Surely truth and orthodoxy intersect from time to time. However, what's considered orthodox should never always be considered to be synonymous with what we think of as true. I spend a good deal of time discussing truth and what that is in my book, False Christian Gods, Choose Your Jesus Wisely. To oversimplify here, truth, with what I normally will put as a capital T, is how God sees things from his infinite, all-knowing perspective. Capital T truth represents absolute reality, regardless of our limited, finite perspective and ability to discern it, to know it. History is written by flawed, finite human beings who generally were on the side of the winners or established authorities. They were the ones who survived the war. They were the ones commissioned by the winners to write down what occurred, and no historian wanted to risk their well-being by bad-mouthing their employer. For example, the often-quoted first-century Jewish historian Flavian Josephus was eventually adopted into the emperor's family. Well, that helps explain how Josephus painted such an innocent picture of general and later emperor Titus, the guy who destroyed the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Then there's the 4th century church historian Eusebius. He was the friend, advisor, and biographer of Emperor Constantine. You know, are we to really trust all that Eusebius wrote about the guy who paid his bills? <laughs> this is what New Testament scholar and church historian Walter Bauer has to say about the historicity of Eusebius's writings. This is a quote. He, Eusebius, tries to make the best of everything, 
and manifests a tendency to move churchmen as close as possible to the generation of the apostles and to push their writings as far back as he can into an apostolic age, while he obscures the chronology of the heretics so that they appear to be more recent. Eusebius is guilty of a serious misuse of the superlative countless when he deals with the church, its size, its influence, its success, its champions, its sacrifices, and the like. Unquote. Many blanks in history are left to fill in because the losers in history and the common people are dead and unable to speak for themselves. What they previously recorded on papyrus or animal skins may have all been destroyed by the victors or simply lost to time because no one thought it was worthy to preserve. The poor never learned to write, so had no ability to record their version of history, and the elite of the governments in charge of the poor were not interested in writing their pathetic history. The church has a long history of controlling history. Mary Beard, historian and author of a book called SPQR, it's about Rome, writes this. The Christian texts of the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries are some of the most extreme examples ever of the rewriting of history to fit the agenda of the winners. They construct triumphalist history of Christianity as victorious both against pagan rivals, despite cruel persecution by the Roman state, and against all the internal variants, heresies as later Christians define them, which challenged what came to be Christian orthodoxy. Well, once Emperor Theodosius I, uh, he, was, he was around from 347 A.D. to 395 A.D., once he became emperor, he effectively made the Nicene Christianity the official state religion of the Roman Empire and put the power and force of Rome behind the church. It was after that happened that unorthodox heretics who disagreed with Rome's version of Christianity, were hunted down and, in many cases, put to death. Their writings were burned. For the first three centuries after Jesus, elders of local gatherings of the ecclesia relied mostly on the Holy Spirit, patience, their reputation, and compelling arguments to change hearts and minds. After Christianity was embraced by Rome, church officials attempted to control by force what the people believed. To support their point of view of what it meant to be Christ-like, church leaders engaged in very un-Christ-like actions. Creating historical forgeries to counteract the effects of false teaching was a practice found in the early church. This included the fabrication of pseudographical letters allegedly written by the apostles. Such letters are well known, and they survive to this day. These false documents address the controversial issues being dealt with in the church after the passing of the apostles, and many times they're written in support of, quote, orthodox, unquote, doctrines, and what eventually became traditions. Church fathers and bishops are the leading suspects for creating these forgeries that I'm talking about. As that author that I talked about earlier, Bauer, puts it, what other authority stands behind the church, if not the bishops? As an example of the proliferation of these false letters, in Edessa, 
an ancient city in the upper Mesopotamian region. A collection once existed of 38 different letters that supposedly were written by the Apostle Paul. That's a number far different from what we know today to be legitimate. But those letters helped to form early Christianity. The Roman Catholic Church throughout its entire history has argued that Scripture can only be understood by considering oral tradition in addition to what's written. Many such oral traditions have been recorded and canonized or sanctioned by the church's authority. These traditions come from sources like the Pope when he speaks on behalf of Christ. When he does that, he's, it's called speaking ex cathedra. Or it may come from one of many official councils that have occurred since 325 AD. Well, what gives these traditions their authority in the opinion of the Roman Catholic Church is what they call apostolic succession, an unbroken chain of godlike authority that extends back to the time of Christ. Roman Catholics believe there has been an unbroken chain of popes, also known as the Bishop of Rome, ever since the Apostle Peter, who is the first pope in their opinion. And they believe that each pope has been handed down the same authority that was given to the Apostle Peter by Jesus. That occurred when Jesus told Peter that he was the rock that Jesus will build his church on, and that Peter will be given the keys to the kingdom of God. Again, that's according to the Catholics that he had that authority handed to him. And you can read that story in Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. Well, as you heard as we went through our survey of the New Testament in the last several episodes, many episodes, I think like the last 15 episodes, that's a gross misunderstanding of Scripture. Peter and the other disciples Jesus spoke to during this interaction are not what makes up the foundation of the ecclesia, but only like the first course of what's called living stones, among many other courses to follow, which will make up the spiritual house that the Messiah, Jesus, is building. Apostolic succession is relied heavily upon whenever the Roman Catholic Church has a different opinion as to how to interpret Scripture than what it plainly says. Roman Catholic religious authorities alone define the meaning of Scripture by claiming that they hold the exclusive right to truth. They believe that because of their apostolic authority they possess. Because of apostolic succession, they think, they alone can speak on behalf of God on this earth and stand in the place of Jesus. Well, what should we make of the claim that the apostles appointed their own replacements and established a system of apostolic succession? We should conclude it's unbiblical. For something so important, surely God would have had one of the apostles authorized to speak on behalf of Jesus clearly address the issue, rather than bend and twist one, one conversation Jesus had with Peter into something that it's not. That Peter was the first CEO of an earthly Christian institution that eventually took on a form almost entirely unsupported by Scripture. The entire context of the passage that we're talking about concerns who Jesus is, not what Peter would be. Jesus' question was to the entire group about his, Jesus' identity, not just Peter. Remember, this question was, 
who do you all say that I am? Uh, other people had been saying that um, he was a prophet, he was a good man, etc., etc. Jesus said, okay, but who do you think that I am? And the way that uh, you uh, is formed it means you all. Who do you all think that I am? Not just Peter. Well, Peter answered on behalf of the whole group, Jesus is the Messiah. That was Peter's answer. Peter, recognizing this and getting the answer correct as to who Jesus is, was not what's important. What was important is the truth that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. Jesus did not use Peter, a flawed, sinful fisherman from Galilee, to lay the foundations of his church on. The Greek word kai is typically translated as the word and. I think it's the number one used word uh, in the New Testament. But anyway, this word and was used as in and upon this rock I will build my church. Okay? So, however, kai, like many Greek words, have other ways that they can be translated based on the context. So, kai can also be translated as but. As in, your name is Rock, or Peter. But, upon this rock, you know, the fact that I am the Messiah, as you rightly answered, Peter, I will build my ecclesia. Jesus did not say, and upon you, Peter, I will build my church. The question becomes, what is the rock Jesus is referring to in contrast to Peter's name, meaning rock. This was a pivotal point. Jesus was now being direct about who he is and his kingdom that he's starting. That is what's important. Not the fact that the Holy Spirit gave Peter the correct answer. Rather, it's the rock is that it's the Holy Spirit. This is, this is the key here. This is the rock the rock of truth, right? It's that it's the Holy Spirit who gives anyone who is elect the right answer that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. That is the foundational rock that Jesus' ecclesia is built on. This was new information to the disciples. If you're going to believe in apostolic succession, you got to rely on extra-biblical sources to do so. That's where documentation supporting the church and documentation regarding the ecclesia diverge. The ecclesia and what it simply is must only rely on the Bible. The church and its sometimes extremely complicated doctrines rely on anything it wishes to canonize, including flawed, sinful human perceptions and reactions to problems based on their previously held pagan worldview and on their opinions which make sense to them at the time. Once apostolic authority is accepted, it allows authority to be based uh, on circular reasoning. So is question number one. Who says X is true and authoritative? Answer number one. Those who are in authority say that X is true and authoritative. Ah, well, question number two then is, well, who granted the authorities their authority? Well, the answer to that question. X granted authorities their authority. Ah, well, who says X is true and authority? Well, 
those who are in authority say X is true and authoritative. Do you see what I'm doing here? I'm just going in circles. It is by their own authority that they say they have authority to say things uh, are true or not. God appointed the authors of the Bible to speak on his behalf under his inspiration. Jesus appointed the apostles to speak on his behalf. However, he never gave the apostles carte blanche authority. Whatever you bind and loose on earth, which are his words, is still subject to the will of God. He never authorized them to pass on any sort of baton, establish a replacement religious system for Judaism, or make anything up. Although translations clearly do, the original words recorded in the Bible never change. Christian creeds and the canon of Orthodox Christian doctrines have been changed and added to thousands of times over the centuries. On which will we place our trust? Those things that change or on the Bible that never changes? Apart from Scripture, history also overwhelmingly demonstrates how Catholic reasoning in support of apostolic succession is flawed. In the end, the fabricated institution known as the Church, not to be confused with the Ecclesia, which does not speak on behalf of God, the Church doesn't, continues to attempt to utilize authority that it never had. And I'm not just talking about Roman Catholics here. The same thing happens within Protestantism. Protestantism, is that the correct word? I'm not sure. Let's move on. So, there are many precepts and teachings within Christianity and Judaism that are very similar to other ancient religions, philosophies, and histories. A well-known example of this are the various ancient accounts of the widespread, even global, flood event. The flood myths from around the world, of course, can be compared to Noah's flood recorded in the book of Genesis. As you're going to see, if you haven't already figured it out, the church quickly got off track, like within the first century. Well, the same thing happens when any story gets repeated over the centuries. The stories will eventually end up in a framework that can be understood by the storytellers and the story receivers across cultures. Many cultures have their own versions of the flood, for example, but Christians and Jews contend the Noah account is the real and original story. The story fits seamlessly with the rest of history contained in the book of Genesis, which goes all the way back to the creation of the world. The Hebrew account boasts the best overall story which fits into the larger context. The traditions of the living chain of descendants who recorded the Noah flood story still existed in the first century and supported the, that storyline. Other cultures had a corporate member a memory of the same story which was handed down to them. They interpreted it through their lenses and fitted into their polytheistic worldview. Just because they may have been the first to write the story down does not mean their version is the most accurate. The first to record something does not necessarily mean they produced whatever they're writing about or were the only ones to witness an event. Justin Martyr makes a case in both his works, uh, The First Apology and Dialogue with Trypho, that the devil, being knowledgeable of the Old Testament scriptures, plagiarized and came up with the mythological stories of the Greeks. 
These stories involved gods who possessed the same attributes of Jesus. For example, Hercules possessed the strength of the bridegroom, spoken of in Psalms 19.5. I'm going to murder this pronunciation here, but I think it's Asclepius. Asculapius. Asculapius. I'm going to spell this for you. A-E-S-C-U-L-A-P-I-U-S. I know if I were any kind of expert on this stuff, I would, of course, know how to pronounce Asculapius anyway. <laughs> like Jesus, that guy was a raiser of the dead and a healer of all diseases. And Bacchus an easier name to pronounce, the son of both a god and a mortal woman, died, ascended to heaven, and instituted a mystical ceremony involving wine. Well, Justin Martyr, he likens this part of the story of Bacchus, you know, this wine-drinking, resurrected Bacchus, to the taking of communion. Likewise, those who record the mysteries of Mithras who was a god that was popular among Roman soldiers from the 1st through the 4th centuries A.D., according to Justin Martyr, they stole their ideas from the books of Daniel and Isaiah. Because a false religion or secular philosophy contains elements of truth that are also reflected within Christianity, that's no reason to say that what we find within Christianity, which is like the false religion or secular philosophy, is necessarily false. Ancient philosophers like Plato and those that followed him made observations about the universe and then they hypothesized based on their observations. For example, to explain the physical world, based on his observations and reason, Plato imagined a quite elaborate spiritual world. Although much of what he imagined is completely contrary to what we find in scripture, parts of it might be interpreted by some to be like biblical truth. Well. Conflicts can arise when one Bible teacher, teacher A, believes they're interpreting scripture pertaining to the unseen spirit world independently from what Plato said, even in total ignorance of what Plato said. Yet another teacher, teacher B, will say what teacher A said cannot be true because it reflects Platonic philosophy. Teacher B may simply say, Christians have taken that interpretation of scripture from Plato, a pagan, so it can't be correct. Well, being a smart guy, Plato was bound to have stumbled on the truth now and then, right? After all, Psalms 19, 1-4 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Plato was an observer of the heavens. We cannot write off truth simply because a Greek philosopher articulated it before or parallel to Scripture. Just because someone like Plato may have articulated the truth first does not mean that anyone is borrowing truth from him or any other, as if they own the truth. I don't borrow truth from Newton every time I drop something and observe that it falls to the ground. Authentic truth only belongs to God. All great world religions contain elements of truth. They wouldn't survive if they didn't. It's not the truth in false religions that make them evil. It's the deception contained within them. Many religions codify morality which reflects the truth. Whether it's the five Buddhist precepts of morality, you know, or the Dharma of Hinduism, or the tenets set out in the Quran for Muslims, you're going to find commonalities with what we find in the Bible, 
like don't kill, treat others with respect, don't take their stuff, and those kind of things. For a specific example, the five precepts of Buddhism are abstain from killing living beings, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, and intoxication. Sounds like it could just be right out of Christianity or Judaism. Every world religion, like secular philosophers, are bound to have stumbled on some truths, have borrowed truth from Judeo-Christian religion, or have made accurate observations about the universe and inferred something about God that is true. So we need to be careful to not throw the truth out with the holy water and conclude something like, that can't be what scripture means. It sounds too much like Eastern mysticism. So it's okay to borrow truth, even if it's from some non-canonized source. Christian ministers do it all the time on Sunday mornings. I've quoted secular philosophers in my books to make my points. God created countless smart, non-elect, non-Christian people. To illustrate this point, here's a question for you. Tell me, what New Testament author would you attribute the following thing I'm going to read to you? Here it is. Listen close. Arise and put on the robe of the priesthood and the crown of righteousness and the breastplate of understanding and the garment of truth and the plate of faith. Does this passage not sound like an alternative translation of the following passage I'm going to read to you, written by the Apostle Paul. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation, the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith. That's from Ephesians 6.14 to 16. Well, the first passage that I read to you was from the pseudepigraphic book called The Testament of Levi. It's one of 12 books called The Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs. Some scholars believe this collection of books was written by a Pharisee sometime between 107 and 137 before Christ. You know, like uh, 150 years before Paul. There's several passages within these writings, including the one that I read, that sound familiar to the reader of the New Testament. So, it's quite possible that when the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and asked him to bring his, quote, coat and books, especially the par parchments, unquote, that the testaments of the twelve patriarchs might have been among them. This may be a shock to some, but Paul and the other New Testament authors read things <laughs> besides scripture and how they expressed themselves was influenced by the things that they read. Some are going to dismiss the possibility that Paul could have or would have borrowed anything other than passages from the Old Testament when he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and what eventually became the parts of the of the Holy Bible. But if Paul did borrow from a writing that was penned prior to the cross by a Pharisee, does that make what Paul wrote any less inspired or true? Is it not God who educated Paul and filled him full of the words from his Pharisee teachers that he used to express that which God wanted him to express? The bottom line for me is if someone, like an apostle, writing on behalf of my Lord Jesus wrote it, 
regardless of where it originally came from or what Greek philosopher may have also said something like it, or some other religion teaches something similar, I'm going to accept it as truth. There are two important reasons for studying what the church fathers wrote. First, we need to understand who was responsible for determining what was first considered and contained in the church to be orthodox, orthodox teaching. Who are the people who determined what form the church, the church should take? Well, we're going to see there were mere mortals who embraced a new religion born out of Judaism. We need to get that Judaism was once totally foreign to them. So how much should we trust these church fathers and their reaction to the world that they were facing as they sorted out what it meant to follow Jesus in the first three centuries? Secondly, is the historical information the early church fathers provided. It may not have been their purpose in writing, but what they wrote can help us to understand what was taking place when the ecclesia gathered. And they can help us understand the historical context in which they gathered. For example, were they being persecuted and how prevalent were the various heretical teachings during their time? The church fathers certainly did have opinions about the coming together of the ecclesia, how they conducted church. But what they believe to be right does not make it right. When we consider their opinions, it should be with their qualifications in mind. What influences helped to form their worldview? For example, were they students of Greek philosophy? What was their exposure to authentic information about the gospel? What historical circumstances prompted them to write? What was their motivation to write? Did they remain in the faith? You know, some of them didn't after they wrote. Kind of in conclusion here for this time around, you know, orthodoxy only represents popular consensus as to what the majority believe to be true. It's not necessarily synonymous with the truth. Recorded history has many downfalls that leaves its accuracy very much wanting. Winners and authorities write history. Losers and commoners are left inadequately represented in history. Politics reshapes history. Only God knows the complete and absolute truth about history. Since the time Christianity was embraced by Rome, the organized church has attempted to control its own historical narrative by politics and force. Apostolic succession and oral tradition are two principles that the Roman Catholic Church has relied upon to maintain its authority. When they can't win an argument using Scripture, they change the meaning of Scripture by claiming their right to do so because of their apostolic authority. Scripture and history both show their claims to be very flawed. Just because we find similarities in ancient false religions and philosophy with what we find in the Bible and what we interpret passages in the Bible to mean, does not mean that Christianity or Judaism borrowed from any of the ancient philosophies or religions. Any lasting philosophy or religion is bound to have stumbled on at least some truth. Where those philosophies and religions are true, it's they that have done the borrowing, or they have made observations of the world around them and have correctly inferred things about God. After all, remember, the heavens declare the glory of God. It's with these things in mind that in the next episode, we're going to start our journey through time. 
by looking at the primal ecclesia, you know, the very first ecclesia in its earliest years. Until then, may God richly bless you. Shalom and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. (laughs) 